there was only one on the market up until late 21. At the end of 21, we saw about eight come to market, eight models from just a couple of, of manufacturers. Um, but we anticipate close to 130 being introduced uh, this year. The unintended consequences of both of these uh, these directions in these sports was it, they, they left the recreational athletes behind. Well, in many cases, a member won't know that's the problem, right? They'll, they'll just feel like I didn't play very well, when in fact it's because... Right now is the most growth and activity the sport of pickleball has ever seen. Participation is at its highest at 36.5 million total players in the U.S. And court development is growing increasingly. According to USA Pickleball's 2022 stats, there are 44,000 pickleball courts, 237 sanctioned events, and 138 community and youth collegiate grants. We all want everyone we know to try pickleball. Actually, we're annoyingly enthusiastic about it. However, most of the people playing don't really know what things like delamination or thermoforming is or even really paddle testing and how it affects them and the sport. My guest in this episode, Carl Schmitz, covers the regulations and testing regarding equipment, specifically paddles, the design of paddles like open throat paddles, and he shares a ton of insights into how to optimize the business of building a pickleball facility and courts. Carl also mentions a new facility here in the U.S. that has 41 courts. And he also talks about how USAP is working on solving one of the biggest problems as to why pickleball isn't growing in neighborhoods and communities. Welcome to another episode of Building Pickleball, where I am documenting the fastest growing sport, really just trying to share different stories within pickleball, ranging from founders to players to folks who are working uh, within the businesses of pickleball as well, such as USA Pickleball. My guest today is Carl Schmitz. He is the Managing Director of Equipment Standards and Facilities Development at USA Pickleball. He's been on the equipment side since 2016. He spent 16 years at Intel. He's a level two certified professional pickleball instructor, and he's the founder of Pro Pickleball Media. Thanks for joining me today, Carl. Thanks for having me, Brian. How come you aren't at uh, PPA Red Rock? What we're doing is is um, evaluating what uh, tool sets to use for the next event. Um, more than likely, we'll be at the Newport event here in just a few weeks uh, with some new tools uh, that uh, we'll be bringing in to do uh, ultrasonic testing for uh, delamination, as well as uh, we'll likely be bringing down our, our new optical scanning platform, which is a uh, a much uh, much more accurate, much more repeatable and consistent platform for testing surface roughness. Where did that optical scanning platform come come from? Is this something that new that you're introducing, or has this been around? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a mature technology. Um, however, what what we've seen over the last um, about eighteen months is a proliferation of paddles that are really pushing the specifications when it comes to roughness. Um, the, uh, and I'll do this in air quotes, the raw carbon face paddles, uh, we've seen that there was only one on the market up until late 21. Um, after that, uh, at the end of 21, we saw about eight come to market, eight models from just a couple of, of manufacturers. Um, but we anticipate close to 130 being introduced, uh, this year. Right. And so, and then it was a, you know, a number in between that for 2022. So. Because the paddle manufacturers have are really starting to push the envelope in terms of specification, 
Um, what had been used over, over the last several years was the Sterrett 160, SR160. Uh, and then at the end of last year, once we started implementing um, uh, paddle control testing, uh, for example, at the uh, Nationals, USA Pickleball Nationals, uh, we used an SR300, which is uh, slightly more sophisticated. Um, it's still a stylus profilometer, so it still uses the old older uh, uh, piezoelectric type uh, pickup, almost like a phonograph needle that, that rakes across the top of the paddle. Um, but it was uh, significantly more accurate than the SR160 that we've been using and provides a good transition to this new technology, which uses uh, optical scanning. It's non-contact, uses something called white light interferometry. And with that, it will map thousands of points of data that we'll be able to analyze and assess whether or not a paddle's uh, surface meets the, uh, the standards. The process of migrating from this older technology and what were our value, our uh, value measurements, RT and RZ, which most of the market's familiar with now, we'll be migrating that using uh, quite a bit of corollary testing and uh, we'll migrate across to S values, which will allow us to actually scan a portion of the, the surface of the paddle face. The main thing that's being tested is that like surface of the paddle. Like what, like previously the SR300 was something that actually touched the surface and the new optical scanner has it doesn't touch at all it's like literally just scanning it mm -hmm. what not to give anyone any ideas of how to find a loophole around it but what exactly if you could explain it like i'm like an eight-year-old because that's kind of as far as my knowledge that's kind of as far as i can go with it what is it looking for uh, what it's looking for uh, would be extreme peak to valley measurements and th that's what the stylus did for us before. Uh, but with the stylus, what we would do is take six axial measurements and then average them out. The challenge we had was when you look at a, at a micro level at the surface of these raw carbon fiber paddles um, that you know, several of the manufacturers are coming out with here recently. This is a, you know, a very familiar um, shape and, and uh, paddle face. Um, the, the stylus can actually work its way through that it's almost like a thread count and work its way through and yield a, a, a different result almost every on every occasion with just a slight movement. And so uh, for the most part, we were we were OK uh, with uh, the measurements and the averaging functions. But we're uh, you know, because there's such a high percentage of paddles now coming out with this more sophisticated face, um, the old school you know, way of measuring really isn't adequate to do it in a repeatable way. Um, so we believe making this migration will help increase confidence that you know, everyone's playing by the same rules out there, no one's trying to game the system, and that uh, the measurements being used for certification as well as for compliance, which is the aftermarket testing program, which we do. And then now we've been introducing this courtside uh, paddle control, it's called, um, which is being used at tournaments to make sure that the, the players are, are using legal equipment as well. Gosh, I have a ton of questions, but one thing that stuck out when you mentioned, like just saying courtside, Travis Rettenmeyer in this most recent event, in the singles event against Tyson McGuffin, he mentions, he's just like that paddle, given the fact that they're both Selkirk athletes, given, I, I mean, you have to take uh, into consideration that Tyson might have a different paddle, but Travis is like, that paddle sounds different. It's hitting different. You're making shots that are working, but 
it was a bad shot and it hit the paddles it hit the paddle bad so it sounds like this is going to be a huge impact as far as like the courtside testing like the way Travis talked about it, it seemed like it's more reactive than proactive as far as how the regulations and compliance can handle a situation like this um sure this is new territory uh frankly um but it's not like it hasn't been uh, addressed and actually taken into consideration in the existing rules uh, but back to the practical application of how we manage certification compliance and now paddle control um, the certification is you know the, the stamp of approval that a paddles pass all of the lab tests and and those paddles that are shipped to market do meet um, approval uh, and and uh, meet the certification standards that uh, everyone's agreed to now uh, the compliance piece of this again is more of a market testing you know we'll uh, discreetly sample paddles that are being shipped out in the market but what we're essentially testing in that case is a new paddle and we're just verifying that it has the same specifications as the one that passed originally. We're ramping up that program significantly because of the number of new paddles that have flooded the market over the last couple of years, and specifically the number of these rougher paddles as well. These still meet specification, but they are very close to the tolerances. This last piece that you're talking about is what can happen to a paddle once it's out in the market and exposed to the elements, um, you know, if, if there's any manipulation of the paddle, um, there needs to be a way of, of uh, controlling that and, and double checking to make sure that that uh, a paddle that doesn't meet specifications is still being used to compete. Clearly, the roughness side we can check with the sterret meters and uh, eventually with this optical scanner, and that's the plan. Um, this delamination issue is uh, is is fairly new. Um, although it is addressed in uh, Rule 2E2, if a paddle does exhibit a delamination, uh, it's up to the player to retire it. It's a piece of equipment that no longer meets specification right there. So, you know, I, ideally a player notices this and says this, this is no longer um, a legal paddle because it's gone through some type of deterioration. And uh, I think in this case, uh, Tyson had actually retired the paddle at the end of the first game. Um, so that, that's, you know, to, to his credit, um, the, uh, the, the way of detecting this, um, there's a, actually a fairly mature technology. Um, it's an ultrasonic bond tester that, uh, we've been, um, we've been evaluating over the last couple of events. Uh, we, uh, used it at the, uh, Austin event, the PPA Austin event. Um, we had it with us at the NLP event as well and used it to, to start testing paddles. So. The plan is to acquire one of these systems and start bringing it to the tournaments as well to where we can um, understand if a paddle has delaminated. In most cases, the players are retiring them because while uh, the, the paddle may spike in terms of additional uh, coefficient of restitution or returned energy off the face of the paddle, it quickly loses control as well and becomes a um, it becomes a, a tool that, that doesn't accomplish what the player is looking for. And so, uh, the, you know, most of the players that I've spoken with that have experienced this have been very forthright in you know, the issues and have been very quick to retire the paddle as well because it's ultimately it's very difficult to win with something that you can't control. Sure, it may hit the ball out of the park, but if you can't keep it in the court, it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you see that it, as far as just like the commentary on it. It's just like, yeah, it works on like a ground stroke from the baseline. But if you're trying to get up to the kitchen and you're playing the soft game, then 
you just have like no control. You're trying to dink and it's just like going in places in places, directions, paces that you're just not expecting. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Brian, the, the, this rule has been there for quite some time. And so the, the understanding of delamination has been around for years. The difference is the, you know, the paddles have evolved as well. The old, you know, older format of paddles um, was a, you know, a facial ply a core, a generally polymer core these days, and then another facial ply. When this would delaminate or the core would uh, break down, the paddle would generally become mushy and it wouldn't feel like it, it could return um, energy the way it used to. There's a new, a new uh, configuration of paddle. It's loosely referred to as thermoformed. However, thermoforming has been around a long time, even with that other configuration. But the paddles that are exhibiting uh, this delamination issue with the spike and power um, have a, a wraparound tube of carbon that's filled with foam. And that provides essentially a frame that suspends the facial plies. And so in the event of delamination, uh, there's a, you know, now there's a suspended uh, facial ply and uh, partially deteriorated core, which now you've got a, a rebound effect, which can return quite a bit more power. Uh, the manufacturers that have this, this configuration are all working to ensure that they're using uh, the best possible bonding and, and adhesive compounds to make sure that it doesn't, uh, doesn't separate. But they're also, excuse me, they're also looking at, um, you know, how do we accentuate the molding process to ensure that that facial ply is, is very well bonded from a pressure standpoint to the core as well. you mentioned delamination and being able to detect it. I think when we talk about delamination, you see a lot of conversations that are geared towards the professionals. Um, I think it definitely does not benefit the recreational player as well. And I think a recreational player, not I think, rec recreational players do make up a, a large majority of the pickleball community, sales, just the usage of paddles. How could, yeah, yeah. Um, how can someone without equipment or maybe not even that much knowledge of a difference between a delaminated paddle and not and not delaminated how can they like tell the difference between oh my paddle is now delaminated yeah there's a, a couple of different ways of doing it um, one is you know clearly there's a change in how fast the ball comes off the face of the paddle um, there's generally a change in the tone uh, when the ball strikes the face of the paddle, it becomes a, a lower frequency clunk or thump. In some cases, actually, there's a higher frequency tick or slap as well. So, um, off the you know off the shelf, the paddle will sound will have a certain acoustic characteristic. Um, if a player does notice a substantial change in that, accompanied with uh, increased power, and of course, in the these old older uh, um, configuration paddles, the traditional sandwich. Uh, uh, paddles that I referred to earlier, uh, if it feels mushy right away, uh, clearly paddle manufacturers will uh, will offer a return for a paddle, uh, or excuse me, for a, a customer um, if they do experience something like that. So if I were a, a consumer and I noticed a, a rapid change in the, the playability of my paddle, it might be hot for a couple of games, which might feel great and, and someone might feel like it's, it's, uh, it's become an even better weapon. 
um, or tool for them. Uh, the, the fact is uh, it will have a very fast deterioration curve. And so really they need to just contact their uh, the paddle manufacturer or distributor and request a refund for it. There is a field test, by the way, where you can take uh, a quarter and tap the face of the paddle. And if it has truly delaminated, it will have a very different sound to it uh, in the middle of the paddle than it will further down toward the throat. And so a couple of taps in each, in each area, if you hear a considerably different tone, then more than likely uh, you're experiencing delamination. Interesting. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for people to know that and understand that because, um, yeah, I think paddles, for the most part, have changed as far as pricing. And no one, of course, wants to spend uh, the whatever amount of money it is on a paddle and it end up being defective. Um, and it, it is good to know that what you said about it, it might feel good temporarily, but like long term, it just that doesn't withstand. And then, like one thing I do really appreciate about manufacturers and the pickleball where it is now is I know a lot of people who've had paddle issues and manufacturers without question just take it and they refund or they like replace the paddle instantly, um, which is great. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Do you think USAP has a responsibility for handling disputes and conflicts that arise during competitions between teams or players in terms of gear? Uh, we, you know, we feel our, our role is to help define the standards. Um, we're, we're essentially providing technical services for the, the pro entities, right? And so uh, in terms of any policies, uh, policy application or disputes, um, it will really be up to um, what the, the, uh, that, that league's governing body wants to implement. So is it a disqualification? Is it a penalty? Um, do you lose your points or, or uh, prize money? It'll be different in every case. And so we're providing essentially uh, guidance on testing, technical support in terms of actually conducting the testing and, and acquiring equipment and, and providing that service to the, uh, to the pro tours and, and these leagues and, and major events as well. And uh, just to make sure that it's consistent. Um, the application of that and, the, uh, and, and what the policy might look look like from league to league uh, will be different for, for a number of reasons. Speaking of leagues and events and kind of uh, USAP's partnership with that, within that realm, aside from the three golden ticket events, how does PPA not being USA Pickleball sanctioned you think affects the tournament? Uh, well, I've, I've had the, the opportunity to participate or support several of their events here this year, um, initially um, presenting, uh, presenting the support and then more recently um, providing on-site support for testing as well. Um, the, you know, there's there's uh, you know, many reasons for sanctioning, um, but uh, up until today, you know, the PPA has, um, has uh, what's the term I'd li I need to use here, uh, they've, they've been uh, respectful of the guidelines put in place, the standards that, you know, we have years of experience in, in of research and implementation and putting together. Uh, and so, um, you know, I'm speaking from that, that angle, um, I, you know, I've been very pleased about being able you know, for USAP uh, to be able to support these events and provide a consistent application of standards 
uh, as well. And so um, what we're also trying to do is raise the bar, right? As I mentioned before, the, you know, there were concerns, confidence issues with the SR160. So implementing a higher spec tool um, almost immediately uh, as of last year and then rolling into this optical scanning platform, uh, we believe is staying ahead of the curve from a technology standpoint, providing an advanced level of technical support and uh, attention to detail around the, the specifications that each of the, um, the, the respective leagues and, and, and those uh, entities uh, want to maintain uh, within their their competitions. They want a fair competition, right? They want a uh, level playing field for the athletes, uh, which is very important. So we're supporting supporting that. And then, of course, our responsibility in maintaining a level playing field for the manufacturers, both at the uh, entry point, um, by that I mean um, certification testing and licensing up front, as well as ongoing while they're, they're still bringing a, a product to market, the compliance testing, those are primary responsibilities for us. We're in a, you know, a collaborative supporting role with the, uh, the leagues and, and pro tours, as, as uh, we described. How quickly does the optical scanning produce like the results necessary to know whether or not it's within regulation? Immediate. It's, uh, oh, okay. it's, it's a couple of seconds to scan. Um, it's, it's run on a, you know, a high spec computer and uh, the, the information is presented. Um, I hope to share with you some, some images of what this looks like. Uh, what's very interesting here is you can manipulate the data in a three-dimensional space uh, to do a deeper dive to understand the texture and terrain of a, of a paddle face. Uh, the examples that I have that, that we've already gone through during our evaluation process have been very interesting. We used three different paddle types. One is the raw carbon uh, paddle face. Another is a, a paddle manufacturer that used a patterned face uh, to introduce texture, which was very interesting. And then the other was a traditional, uh, although high friction, uh, peel ply fiberglass face, a very popular model, which I'm sure everyone's uh, familiar with. Um, and uh, the, what's revealed with these scans is very interesting in terms of the regularity of the peaks and valleys or the, the uh, friction inducing uh, pieces uh, on, a, on a paddle face or uh, features on a paddle face. So as far as like manufacturers, they probably send you like all the like demo paddles and everything before they're being released. And then you get to test them out and um, obviously run this uh, using the tools for testing. But do you also kind of like hit with them and get a feel for those? In most cases, yes. Uh, so we see every paddle that's submitted for, uh, for certification. Uh, there's a team of three. Uh, that evaluate these paddles. It's not just me. So there's a, a team of three on the equipment evaluation committee that review the paddles, uh, look for specific uh, specific features on it. And of course, there are multiple paddles or samples sent into our labs, NTS, for the, the actual lab testing uh, under you know, very specific conditions. So there's a, you know, a fairly, fairly significant group of qualified individuals that review the paddles up front and, uh, and then we're putting in place a compliance lab uh, um, up here in the Northwest where not only will we have the library of all paddles tested and certified in the past, but uh, this is where we will um, also be testing paddles for compliance in the future. So uh, we're also doing a few, a few very interesting things. Um, we'll, we'll be starting acoustic testing of paddles uh, when they're submitted to be able to give it a, essentially an acoustic profile. Um, it isn't meant to 
uh, label them as good or bad. Uh, it's just to gather the data and start to build a, a good database of, of paddles that, uh, that exhibit uh, certain acoustic characteristics, which is a, a big part of um, and very related to uh, the growth of the sport, right? There's been uh, some concerns over the, the sport's acoustic profile. And so this is one of the initiatives that we'll be doing um, here in Q2, kicking off in Q2, uh, which is understanding a, a specific paddle's acoustic profile. Wow, super exciting. Yeah, paddles, every paddle like sounds very different. I always thought the, like the project zero, the project paddles from Selkirk, they sounded very different. What paddle do you use now? To be frank, I, I'll hit with almost every paddle that comes in. We have, uh, I received two paddles, uh, one for archive and then one for protesting. Otherwise, uh, the acoustic testing, destructive testing, we're starting to do a bit more of that as well to understand a bit more of the, the components uh, in a paddle. Um, yeah, I, I, I like many paddles. Uh, my, <laughs> I like a soft paddle. Uh, I like a, a paddle that has a nice swing weight that's uh, higher. I, I do have a, a three-in-one head swing weight machine, uh, which I use to evaluate a paddle's balance, uh, basically weight and balance. So it, it tests if it's head heavy, head light. Um, it, it has a very accurate uh, uh, scale on it as well. Uh, but then the swing weight piece of it's a very sophisticated way of evaluating um, where the weight is located in the paddle as well. And so I like something that's a little where the weight's a little bit further out. Um, and, and so there, yeah, there's many, uh, many that fall into the, that uh, sweet spot for me. Damn. I thought I was going to be able to get you to drop a name. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing with you. How was MLP Daytona, you know, just from your perspective of the testing, like there was a lot of data collection in order to start getting an idea of baseline protocols and policies for infield testing, but also, you know, like what was just your perspective as someone who's been in the sport for a while and seeing MLP as a new tournament format? Sure. Uh, it, it was my first uh, in-person experience of an MLP event, and it was it was fantastic, uh, frankly, uh, just my uh, personal experience there. Uh, from a testing standpoint, um, they've, they've been evolving this uh, apparently over the last couple of events. Um, at this event, they had a, an experienced team in place that would, um, uh, the, the paddles would be logged on ingestion. Um, they would be moved to a, a discrete testing area where they were run through a battery of tests and this data was collected, as you mentioned. Um, the chain of custody was, was uh, very thorough uh, in terms of you know, no one touching the paddles outside of the testers. Um, and then yeah, they were put in, in uh, a secure area for the players to come back and pick up later. And so I was very impressed with the process they had in place. Um, I, I hope to continue to support them with uh, you know, various equipment platforms, whether it's the ultrasonic tester or the optical uh, scanning platform in the future because of its, its sophistication as well. Uh, but they're in a kind of a data acquisition mode right now. And so I'm, I'm anxious to see what the rollup uh, looks like after this last event. What do you think is the best way to regulate what the standards are for testing? Like, do you think maybe it leans towards having a representative from each company and being able to have like, maybe there's like an open summit like every year and they talk about like the standards. From what I understand, like USA Pickleball does the compliance testing, but then there's also manufacturers who always want to like push the boundaries and kind of innovate, which from my understanding, USA Pickleball doesn't have 
like a like a hand in that per se, right? Uh, absolutely, a, a national governing body shouldn't, frankly. So we we provide a, a framework uh, for uh, for paddle manufacturers um, and ensure limits, uh, roughness, deflection, coefficient to friction, dimensioning, and, and gloss are the main uh, are the main uh, metrics that we're looking at to to control or contain. Um, that's all in the interest of uh, preserving what we believe to be the nature of the sport. And it's a sport that, you know, um, has a, a fairly dynamic range of, of uh, aspects to it from you know, everything from precision and touch to, to some power as well. And we've, and this is a, a position that the board takes, you know, to, to make sure that's being maintained. It's up to the equipment evaluation committee to ensure that the standards and testing procedures support that. Now, uh, in terms of innovation, so this is a very good question, um, and I've seen quite a bit of it the last few years. Um, there's a, a fine line between uh, control, and uh, I will credit uh, a very well-known manufacturer with this positioning, and I've, that I've, I've used it many times, and that is we have to be careful about defining too narrow a development aperture, or all paddles will be the same. And so there has to be a bit of, of room for development and innovation, which we, we believe we've given. And, and we're seeing that in different technologies now. Um, open throat paddles, you know, we started to see come out a year and a half, two years ago. And uh, I'll address that in a minute from a rules standpoint, uh, rules interpretation standpoint. But, um, you know, so we're seeing uh, some real innovation in materials uh, manufacturing process. Uh, so I'm sure you've seen the, the number of uh, fully laid up or fully formed edgeless paddles coming out um, here in the last year or so, which um, are, you know, they're very sleek. Uh, there's a, you know, they've got a different, uh, different look and feel to them. Um, and, and I think from a fit and finish standpoint, they're, they're very good looking uh, equipment. Um, the open throat piece is a logical and natural uh, evolution. Um, it has been in every paddle and racket sport over the years. Um, there have been questions in the past about this is a hole in the paddle face and it violates uh, one of the, the rules. Well, the, the rules, in, the rule in its full um, full text, uh, which is in our equipment standards manual, is that um, holes on the face of the paddle that induce friction are disallowed. So this would be like on the face of a paddle paddle, for example. Um, those are disallowed in our sport. Um, but a, an open throat is a natural configuration evolution that we've seen in every paddle sport. The only one it's uh, disallowed in is badminton, where there must be a single shaft. But you've seen it in squash, racquetball, tennis, um, in, in all the major um, sports. You've seen it in padel, for example. Uh, open throats are now the norm as well. So anyway, just a, a clarification on that. Um, hopefully that answered your question. Uh, we, you know, we want to make sure that there's room for innovation. And frankly, uh, there's a fine line between um, looking for loopholes uh, versus uh, exploring the white space uh, between, between the rules. And the, the latter is what, uh, what we like to see, um, you know, exploiting loopholes in uh, testing technologies and things like that, that, uh, that, that will elicit a different response from us. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, I appreciate your response and the thoroughness. Um, yeah, no, you're definitely right. It's like there is a definition or there is a difference between innovation and just looking for loopholes. Like I think thermoforming is a piece of innovation 
the open throat is another aspect of innovation. What have you noticed is been the side effect of an open throat shaft or paddle? Uh, well, from a, a physics standpoint, it improves uh, something called polar polar moment. Uh, it provides a more stable face uh, for the paddle. The attach points are wide instead of just down the center axis. The open throat provides a, a more stable um, uh, it's also called twist weight or, or uh, spin weight, um, where before I talked about swing weight, right? So it's around a different axis. Um, that to me is one of the most important pieces of it and, and benefits of it uh, that, that I've seen. Damn, that's interesting. I never considered that. I just thought like it gave it more more pace, like aerodynamics, I guess, but that's also yeah, why I don't work for you. Yeah, <laughs> That's, uh, that's true. Uh, there can be an aerodynamic benefit, uh, maybe a couple of percentage points. Um, nothing that's really going to make a big difference on, on a, a single hit. Um, however, reducing aerodynamic drag, uh, not unlike better gas mileage, adds up at the end of an hour. And so the energy required to swing the paddle may be a little bit less uh, than a, a paddle without an open throat. Um, you know, I've seen, actually seen lab results of, of paddles with open throats or vents um, in it to allow uh, allow a little bit um, uh, less pressure, face pressure to build up on the paddle. Of course, you sacrifice a little bit of hitting area with an open throat. Uh, and of course, that's a, um, you know, for a manufacturer that may be a, uh, an acceptable trade-off. So then those paddles, not that they're necessarily like USA or like tournament approved, but the paddles with the holes on like the sides and more like on the paddle face rather than the throat, that's less about stability then, right? There's a, there's actually a, uh, maybe an unintended consequence of, of those vents on the sides that you're talking about because the, um, on the drill through, uh, material has to be uh, put into those, those hole, those uh, pass throughs to seal off, excuse me, the uh, core. And it actually may introduce weight on this, excuse me, on the sides of the paddle, which also is a, a benefit in terms of improving the polar moment. So I, I think it's an unintended benefit. The reduction in aerodynamic drag, um, you know, could be several points as well. And uh, the manufacturer that produces those paddles has done considerable research in this area. There's one other point I wanted to make. The fact that it's out within one half inch of the, the bumper guard or the edge of the paddle, it falls into a space that, that we're comfortable with and have been comfortable for years. Uh, the interpretation on that is that, you know, that's as part of the paddle that you can put a tape with your name on or write or, you know, we're not so concerned about uh, anything that close to the edge of the paddle. You you use a lot of terminal, like technical terminology, which may have just built up over the years that you've been doing this. Uh, you've been on the equipment side for six years, but uh, something that uh, when researching your background, something that was very intriguing to me was your background at Intel. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Intel is a very well-known tech company. They've been producing uh, microprocessors uh, for a very long time. And I come from the tech space. Uh, you were there for 16 years. How has that played a role, if it has at all, in your what you're doing now or you know like how did that experience shape you as the person that you are uh today um yeah i'd like to address that by maybe a broader view um you know having been in in uh the workforce for 
uh, for four decades. Um, I've had a chance to do many things in my life. And um, prior to, to my time in, in tech, um, I worked for, a, uh, I was an exec with the Fortune 50 companies you've mentioned, also with a smaller public company in, uh, in Europe. Uh, prior to that, I was, uh, uh, I was an entrepreneur. I started and ran a small business back in the late, uh, late 80s prior to moving into tech. Um, this was, uh, it was essentially an equivalent uh, and started the same year as NetJets. Uh, it, was a, it was a fractional ownership uh, charter operation that, uh, unfortunately, uh, where NetJets was, was funded by Warren Buffett, uh, we were not. <laughs> and so uh, so that, you know, that was an uh, interesting experience from a small business and startup standpoint. Prior to that, um, I, was a, I was a racquetball pro uh, back in the, the boom years. And uh, uh, following that, uh, that period, I was a club GM and, and ran several facilities, uh, which makes my, my function in the facilities development side very appropriate. And then before that, uh, my, my uh, work life started as a uh, systems engineer with a focus on industrial engineering, uh, working with uh, the largest R&D entity in, in the U.S., and that's Battelle Memorial Institute. So really what I'm doing today is a convergence of, of all those things that I've done over the last 40 years. And uh, you know, that's what makes it so interesting to me. I'm able to apply what I've learned, uh, uh, learn from the scars, you know, from uh, from failures or you know industry uh, booms and busts, and and I, you know I'm really trying to take an approach to address those things that I didn't feel were addressed, for example, in racquetball or not recognized in racquetball and tennis, and that that's part of this museum behind me. Um, you know, I was a sponsored player with Pro Kenix and a Wilson and a few other companies in my racquetball days. But what you can't see here is that, you know, from the, the, the top here, we went from a very small, probably 70 square inch wooden racket through a number of different iterations of composite rackets. This was my, my racket when I was uh, competing and teaching. Uh, but here we've got a very large 105 square inch racket, right? Uh, a modern one. Um, on this side, I've got a bit of an evolution of, of tennis with some very notable rackets, uh, Max Play Fort. Uh, the first fully composite racket was a, um, a, uh, a vocal zebra. Um, and then, of course, uh, the game changer was the Prince, the first Prince, which brought in a 105 plus square inch string bed to tennis. The unintended consequences of both of these, uh, these directions in these sports was it, they, they left the recreational athletes behind. And so in addition to this being a, a museum, uh, it's also a cautionary tale. And this, you know, I see this and it reminds me that, you know, our role every day is to make sure that you know, nothing too crazy um, happens out there. We keep an eye on development. Uh, we provide as much support as we can to the ecosystem. Um, but, you know, it's, it's up to us as the, as the governing body to ensure that the sport doesn't change so quickly that the unintended consequence of leaving the, the high percentage, the highest percentage of recreational players behind um, happens. So that's a that's something that we we think about every day and drives our policy making, um, our focus on the standards and ensuring that the test protocols and testing technologies are advanced as advanced as they can be. That's awesome. I really appreciate that uh, share. And the sport is very lucky and fortunate to have someone who is constantly reminded of the past 
especially when a sport is growing very, very quickly. And that is something that I've thought about a lot. You see like a lot of talk about the delamination and uh, paddle defects and, you know, all these things coming up uh, on the pro player side. At the end of the day, it's like the consumers that are most affected because uh, a lot of these consumers, there's not just tournament players, but rec players. And at, at some point, maybe they can't get the warranty. And they also are left wondering like, hey, I just dropped like $150 on this paddle. What is the deal with this? Like, is it now? Is it just going to sit on my shelf and be left to accumulate dust? Or, you know, can I play with it? So, um, yeah, I can think I can speak on behalf of many people that a sport is very fortunate to have you and uh, especially the governing body. And thank you for the the responsibility and accountability that you take and the, the seriousness and the thoroughness to um, provide this aspect to the sport that at the end of the day affects everyone. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Your background is very interesting. I, it's reassuring to hear when you say convergence of many skills because in backgrounds, because I come from doing so many different things and you hear a lot about it in life is just people talk about, you know, mastering that one skill set. Don't be a jack of all trades. You don't want to have too much knowledge and too many things. You don't want to spread yourself thin. And then eventually you have folks like you who can speak to convergence. Not that everything that you did was wildly different directions, but it is uh, great to hear that. I appreciate that. Uh, there's a book out there. Um, uh, the title is Range. And it, it is, uh, I believe it was done by, I hope I don't misquote this, David Epstein. Uh, yep. He's wrote some very, very interesting books. And I, I'm a firm believer in that. I, you know, in, in systems engineering, um, you know, it's a, a basically a, an assembly of many different disciplines. Um, and, and likewise, industrial engineering is as well. And I, I believe, you know, to be effective in a smaller organization, you do need to be able to do uh, and bring you know, several, uh, several skill sets to bear, um, you know, Cross-functionality and being able to operate across an organization is still important in small, small organizations. Um, but I believe uh, a diverse skill set is is very helpful and something that um, you know I would certainly uh, coach someone on trying to develop throughout their their lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. You did a presentation at the American Sports Builders Association. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. Um, yeah. So the uh, USA Pickleball has been able to present to you know a, a very large body of of uh, court builders um, each year. Um, I had the opportunity to present to this group uh, in December, uh, just a few months ago, and the the theme of the story was um, you know there were a couple different uh, uh, topics, but uh, the overarching theme was you know, why 2024 wouldn't be like 1984. And of course, my, my comparison was to racquetball's boom and bust and that we're paying attention to it. You know, we want to make sure that we're focused on the right aspects of the sport to continue grassroots growth, uh, continue to support other programs that uh, we, we believe will have a, a long-term impact on the game, as well as uh, building up the infrastructure, which is uh, you know, another uh, key focus for me in terms of uh, supporting design and, and uh, the right material selections for, uh, for venues. Um, the, the, the main theme there was, uh, you know, paying attention to 
uh, supporting these build outs in a way that is sustainable. And, and so the growth in the, the 80s, both in the racquetball clubs, but also many tennis clubs, it wasn't sustainable for a number of reasons. Um, in, in tennis, um, you know, there were, there were some, some reasons that you know, had to do with the sheer costs of a tennis barn, for example. Um, and in both cases, the private club uh, type business model was very difficult to sustain. Uh, employer member acquisition and member retention are, are incredibly expensive. Um, and then, of course, when it comes down to infrastructure, building, then heating and cooling, uh, a racquetball court, for example, uh, is quite expensive. And so if you can't keep people in there, you know, uh, with a, a high utilization rate, um, it's, it's Darwinian. You, you have to make a decision at some point and reallocate those resources, which that was my theme is that um, we need to learn uh, from that era. And now when, you know, very, very excited people come to us today for support for club design um, or facilities design and development, um, we, we uh, walk through their business plan with, with them. Uh, we look at their facilities design, uh, you know, along with the uh, specifics of, you know, the consultation, we do talk about perhaps a, a more cautious or gated approach, uh, which I would describe as crawl, walk, run. And so do you go out and take a, a $5 million loan to build out your facility right away without you know, really doing a deep dive on the market or testing your business model? Um, and so in many cases, we look at a phased build out, which might start with a, a cluster of courts and then adding them on as they reach certain gates. And uh, ideally, you might be able to bootstrap the operation or at least reduce the amount of debt load that you take on. That was a big part of the problem back in the 80s, uh, specifically with racket clubs. And that was the amount of debt taken on um, that could never be, never be offset with income. And so our advice is that, you know, don't, uh, don't bite off more than you can chew. Um, look at a phased model. And uh, there's a number of different business models that we really are, are excited about with the advent of these rollout surfaces that have an acrylic and silicate finish, it enables owner operators, um, uh, developers to inhabit previously unused commercial or industrial spaces or hangars, for example, and roll out, let's say, six or eight courts to begin with. And once they reach a certain membership level, then they expand. And uh, the upside of this is that they could actually uh, roll up uh, the, the courts disassembled pro-grade nets on Friday and open up in a new larger facility on Monday uh, because this, you know, this, uh, these capital investments um, can be taken with you rather than left behind in a conventional case. I can't wait to highlight this, what you just said in the past like five minutes into a clip. Um, this is amazing uh, because I think like one, the aspect of the, the point that you're making about uh, the crawl, walk, run, and not biting off more than you could chew is very important right now because the thing that is probably second to paddle creation, at least from my perspective, is building out courts. Um, you're just seeing it. And I have like, I spoke to a guest, I've spoken to two people so far, or actually three, who've all uh, build, been building out courts. And one of them just built out the largest indoor pickleball facility in uh, Texas, which is located in Houston. It's called Pala. And I love that USA Pickleball is 
providing a resource as well. Is this resource, is it, is it free? Is, what's the cost? Uh, this first year, we've been providing it uh, free of charge. Um, you know, our, our main goal is to help support, uh, support the identification and, and uh, rapid development of facilities. Um, there, we'll be moving into more of a services model. Um, we have uh, you know, a pretty good partnership with uh, an external group that helps with feasibility studies, uh, owner representation, um, a company called Ground Rule, and they've, they've been a very good partner for us in the past, and we look to expand you know, how we're working with them today. Um, what we'll be doing, uh, we'll layer in some services that'll include uh, uh, data to support feasibility studies, economic impact, and, and we've been doing this already this last year, um, you know, to the tune of probably 15 to 20 new engagements a week. It's been, yeah, it's been very busy. Uh, and so we're, we're bringing in additional resource to try to keep up with that. Um, but I, I think the, back to, to reflect on, you know, your observation, um, to, to borrow Alan Greenspan's comment of years ago of, of irrational exuberance, you know, for people that are coming into this are super excited. We just want to make sure that they're looking at the big picture and, um, uh, you know, take very well-considered steps as they make investments and, and possibly take on debt during the process of a, uh, of a facilities build-out. Yeah, because this country does not need to take on more debt. <laughs> it's right. a separate conversation. It's great that they're excited about it. I uh, just want to make sure that, uh, you know, that, that there's, you know, it's done in a step-by-step -step, you know, manner. And, and one last quote I'll give you uh, was from a, uh, a colleague back in the, the days of the aircraft charter that I mentioned before, and uh, his his comment was, "There's no magic in aluminum," and and so people that got into the aviation business just because of the love of flight that that doesn't run a good operation, right? So his point was, it's still a business at the end of the day that that has to thrive and or at least survive, and uh, and so that was a, a comment I've I've uh, uh, kept and remembered for 30 plus years. USA Pickleball is doing, you know, what you just mentioned, offering that resource as far as like facilities development. Uh, they're like getting courts built. There's grant money. Is there anything else there that you want to touch upon as far as uh, what's going on with USA Pickleball? And it's great to have this free, it's great to have this resource that's looking out for the growth of the sport. Um, yeah. It, uh, just to clarify, um, we're not offering grants for facilities. Um, we're, we're not in the same space as, uh, as USTA. Um, know also though that those grants, you know, that, uh, uh, an entity like the USTA might, might offer do come with strings. And so, uh, at, at this point, we're, we're not resourced to do that, that kind of thing. Um, but I think the, the, the value add that we bring is, is a deep experience in, uh, programming, operations, design. Um, subtleties all the way down to, to court selection, or sorry, color selection. Um, it, it, you know, things like that are very important. You know, ultimately, uh, a pickleball facility is a place, it's a place for sport and athletic competition and paying attention to things like, you know, that, that are important to an athlete like optics. Um, you don't have light backgrounds in, in your facility. Uh, the choice of red, for example, as a, um, border, you know, an OB or court color, um, you know, doesn't take into the fact that red um, it very much stimulates the, uh, 
uh, rods and cones of your eye and, and can leave after images. So um, it's fatiguing if you're playing on, on a surface with, you know, with red. And so what I've seen, uh, mostly in place already, but my advice is cool, darker colors, uh, you know, for, for uh, court selection and um, you know, color identification or color choices uh, for a, an athletic facility, is, is specifically the flooring and background, are no place for personal expression. Uh, you know, so you know, for for picking a, a favorite color or something like that, it's it's an athletic endeavor, and so um, uh, you know, eye uh, acuity, uh, optical clarity, keeping uh, clutter down. You know, so changes in the background, keeping things as uncluttered as possible. It's those subtleties that really uh, improve the player experience or the member experience as well. And in many cases, a member won't know that's the problem, right? They'll they'll just feel like I didn't play very well when in fact it's because uh, the optics weren't weren't great uh, within a facility. And um, and, and you know, the, and we've seen this you know many times in the past. So uh, we're we give that kind of advice. Almost every facility that comes to us, Brian, is, is, wants to be part of a tournament pipeline. And so we're giving them advice on ensuring that there's space for operations, space for the referees, you know, to be able to, to uh, meet, be briefed in the morning, and then rest between matches and keep their, their equipment, um, space and hardscape for vendors. And of course, you know, uh, uh, let's say you know, we use a formula or an algorithm to determine what the capacity might be for a tournament. And of course, it's, uh, it's, I think it's about 4x what the face value is for the, uh, the number of people on the court, right? So you've got uh, a 20 court facility. Of course, the math says 80 people can be out there playing. Well, there can be actually you know, 220 to 240 uh, players at the event that day. So you have to plan for that capacity and, and movement of traffic and things like that. So we're giving them that kind of advice on the design side as well. And we're not we're not laying it out ourselves. We've got architects and, and designers that we pull in that are content experts. Was not aware of this, and I'm not even sure if many other people are. Uh, based on what I've seen at some courts, I don't think that people are aware that this resource exists because. Yeah, just like you said. Well, we, we've only been around a, you know, a year and a quarter uh, with this focus. And of course, most of the, the facilities you play on have, you know, have been finished in the past. Many of these projects, for example, I, I uh, met with a 41 court project in Fort Lauderdale last week. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful layout and plan. Uh, they've got significant, um, uh, a significant strategy in terms of addressing the entertainment crowd, uh, the competition crowd and the community itself, and they're they're looking to align very closely with USA Pickleball and programming and design and even R and D uh, down the line. So we're very excited about that, but that won't be fully operational till 2024. And so the pipeline for you know for these type of uh, facilities is is much longer. Um, we are we are working with the ASBA, by the way in um, updating this manual. So this is the 2020, the most recent manual, uh, Court Builders Manual, and we're working very closely with them to update it to include some of the, these things that I, I've been mentioning, like the color selections, um, tournament amenities you know, for, for large-scale events. Um, there will also be a section on acoustics, 
which we're investing a significant amount of, of energy in R&D. And um, you can see these two microphones in back of me. Um, the old school method of, of evaluating an acoustic footprint of, of a venue is to use a single omnidirectional mic. Um, uh, what we're finding is that uh, our sport is getting essentially broad brushed with a lot of the other ambient sounds in an area, aircraft flyover, reflections off of adjacent buildings, traffic. And so what you see behind you are ambisonic mics with multiple microphone capsules on them, which can provide something called auditory localization. And it will more accurately attribute the court's contribution to the soundscape or traffic or aircraft flyovers. And so we're trying to advance the ball in terms of, of understanding uh, you know, how you measure the, the acoustic imprint uh, and footprint of our sport and uh, whether uh, the courts exist already or uh, it's a design project and we got to go in and, and measure uh, the soundscape of an existing area. And there's several projects where we're working with them on that. Damn, that's beautiful. Uh, I wish we had like three hours to talk. I'm not going to lie. Those things in the back, those uh, omnidirectional microphones, I thought that was like Star Wars memorabilia. It looks a little like the Death Star. Yeah, this is a 19... <laughs> This is a 19 capsule ambisonic mic, uh, Damn. Is, and it's you know it's fairly high value. Uh, this is a four capsule ambisonic mic, uh, which we may actually put together in kits and send out to ambassadors um, to to collaborate with acoustical engineers, with certified engineers, but to take a much more granular approach to evaluating the acoustic soundscape of a site. That's amazing. I cannot wait for that. Uh, I cannot wait to share this. I just have one last question is what advice would you give to someone who's interested in pursuing a career in sports regulation and governance? Uh, that's a great question. Um, if I look at myself, um, you know, I, I had a specific experience in a number of different uh, industries that could be applied toward, uh, toward the sport. Um, outside of what I do for, for USA Pickleball, I built a, a media platform years ago because there was a, an absence of a, of a low-cost live streaming, live broadcast platform. So I, I handled all the pro tournaments back in 2019 before the, the two pro tours kicked off. Um, but it's, I think, understanding what your strengths are, um, looking for an opportunity to, to bring that contribution to, uh, to the sport. Um, understanding what the gaps might be because we're we're not all there yet. You know, we're still in our early stages of development. Um, we're we're understanding more and more about the physics of the sport, and so we're trying to apply things like this optical scanning and and other technologies to better understand it. Analytics is huge, the potential, uh, and and right now it's largely absent. You know, certainly from broadcast and even after the fact, it's just. Right now, it's uh, heavy lifting to analyze matches. So there's there's a very there's quite a few uh, opportunities I think to bring specific uh, specific uh, uh, expertise to. Uh, but that you know that saying that even volunteering, you know, as an ambassador, uh, that that is huge. I, I would say that our ambassadors are our most valuable asset. There's close to two thousand out there that are promoting the sport and you know, supporting. Uh, uh, site, uh, site identification and build outs or conversions, uh, leading leagues and, and you know, really 
um, helping grow the sport at the grassroots level. So even without a you know specific uh, uh, background in in uh, something that might plug in you know to the, the staff, um, there's plenty to do um, out in the, the community as well. So I, I'd say that if you love the sport and you have a you know you have some cycles available uh, to you know to to help um, contribute, check in with your local district ambassador. Um, or local ambassador and ask where you can help. It might start off of, as volunteering for an event, but that's a great place to start. Appreciate that input and insight. And that's where I started, um, by the way. I was a local ambassador here in my, my hometown. There you go. Proof is in the pudding. It can, <laughs> it's seen it in the flesh now. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, where can people find out more information about you, what you're doing, any other resources that you think are valuable? Of course, our, our website is a, a great resource, <clears throat> uh, usapickleball.org. Um, there are specifics um, for uh, the facility side as well as for the uh, equipment side. And those are available you know, through drop-down drop, drop down menus. Um, if you want to drop a note to uh, on the equipment side, um, it's just equipment at usapickleball.org. On the facility side, you know, same same uh, uh, format of facilities at usapickleball.org, and uh, of course my my email is uh, cschmitz at usapickleball.org, and so I'm happy to respond to direct questions, um, or you can go through those uh, those other channels as well. Awesome! This was a lot different than I was expecting. There's so much more stuff that I took away from this, even personally. Really appreciate your time and sharing your insights from the technical aspect, from just aspects of life. It really made this enjoyable. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, to go over these, and uh, maybe we can follow up uh, once we've launched some of these new programs as well. That would be awesome. Yeah. Very good. Thanks, Carl. All right. Thank you. 